wherever you are, wherever you are, and whenever it is, you are catching some rainwaves coming to you from the banks of the deciduous and amber St. Rain River in almost always sunny Longmont, Colorado. I'm Becky Peters, and across the table is the co-host whom hundreds of children will dress up as and this Halloween, Ben Kalb. Ben, what's good? It's all good, Becky, but I sincerely hope that no one dresses up as me, for I have been told that I have the perfect face for podcasting. And at first I was flattered by that, and then I started to understand what they meant by it. But uh, whether or not I have a face that only a mother could love, I do have the insane privilege of bringing the advice of giants and education to the earbuds of my favorite people, busy teachers, all to make us more informed, inspired, and connected educators. And to that end, we have a sincere treat, not a trick, in store for you today. That's for sure. In this episode, we interview Allison Zamuda, who is the author of over 10 books. And specifically for this episode, we talk to her all about student engagement. If you want to get straight to her interview, go ahead and skip ahead to the eight-minute mark. Otherwise... Hey Siri, what time is it? It's time to get out of our heads and into the classroom. I need help! Somebody please help me. Help me! Give me something I can use. Let's get out of our heads and into the classroom. That's right. It's out of our heads and into the classroom, the part of the show where we give you actionable advice and tangible tips that you can put into practice right away. I'm going to kick us off today with one that I've seen in a few different rooms now, but that I think everyone should be doing or trying for student ownership. It's a math example, but we'll, we'll extrapolate it to other areas too. And I don't know who to cite for this because I've seen different versions, but if you're listening and you are sure that you've made this up, please let me know and I'll give appropriate credit. But anyways, for more student ownership, I've seen teachers encouraging students to collect their own data after either assessments or just individual work where the student basically has a checklist to go over their work and look at like say number one for example and the table will say what type of question it is so whether it's like adding fractions or common denominators whatever the skill is the teacher can provide that scaffold and then the student walks through their work so number one number two number three which questions they missed and for each one they indicate whether they missed it because of a simple mistake or because of a conceptual misunderstanding and then when they've gathered enough evidence they can start to identify the learning behaviors that might help them in that area. So if they're consistently making simple mistakes, for example, they might set a learning goal to double check the responses with complementary algorithms. Or if it's a conceptual understanding on both of the uncommon denominator questions, they can go back and review that standard or that skill. I'll link an example in show notes because I'm not sure if I did it justice just doing a verbal explanation. But you can also imagine what that might look like for language arts or for social studies. Like, did I miss all the main idea questions? Or am I consistently missing factual questions and I need better strategies for finding material in a complex text? Either way, it's a really strong and simple technique for metacognition. I really like that. I think, yeah, especially the part of making some goals based on what are the problems that you consistently trip up on. I think that's super cool. So I have two of them today. The first one comes from one of my friends and a friend of the show, John Smith. And he's a tech coordinator out in Ohio. And he was in a training this morning. And in that training, they had these really cute napkins, and I later found out that the brand is called Mardi Gras. They're not yet a sponsor of the show, but Becky, maybe if we play our cards right, we'll get sponsored by Mardi Gras napkins. That'd be, Ooh, what do you that'd think? be an awesome sponsor yeah, like of the it. show. Yeah. But these napkins had really cute pictures on them and then cool sentence starters. So one of the napkins says, what makes you stand out? Or what's the most outrageous thing you saw today? Or you're a world traveler. What's your next stop? Aww. Right off the bat, when I facilitate PD, I like to have food present. So I thought it'd be really awesome to pick up a bunch of these napkins just as a 
icebreaker for my participants. I thought that was a cool out-of-the-box thing right away. But then I thought how cool would it be if you had teachers and students designing these napkins specifically for their content or for their school, just kind of as um, sentence starters, as bell ringers or anything like that. So kids could have... What's the coolest thing you've learned in school this year? What's the hardest you've ever worked on a project? Or what's one time you used something you learned in math class outside of class? And I just thought the ability to get the wheels turning with something real simple, like some napkins, was a uh, a pretty simple but powerful idea. That is super cool. And you could have them in the cafeteria, too, for to have uh, help students have more furtive discussions with their colleagues uh, at the lunch table. That would be awesome. Or for me, like... I would often just grab my lunch and go straight to the bathroom so that I wouldn't have to be sitting alone. So yeah, you could have some in the bathroom too. Yeah. So then this, but then this way, maybe you have a set and starter and you could start a conversation if you're shy. I I love it. I need it as well. Uh, My next tangible tip is all about annotating pictures that kids have actually taken. So this is possible in in a lot of different ways. If you are on a Chromebook, students can do this in some ways on Google Drawing or inside of Google Slides. But the iPad or the iPhone makes this really, really easy. And so it's all about annotating over top of pictures that you've actually taken. Hmm. All a student has to do on on an iPad is to take the picture in the Photos app, tap on the Edit button, tap the three dots, and then tap Markup. And we'll have a link to this in the show notes. And from there, they have all of these different colors and they have pens and pencils and paintbrushes that they can draw all over top of an image that they've actually taken. So instructionally, I've seen this used really powerfully in almost every subject area. I've seen a math teacher who has her students take pictures of the flagpole in front of the school and then measure the shadow and then draw the triangle that lets them know how tall the flagpole is based on the length of the shadow and the angle. I've seen a preschool teacher who does a unit on writing fictional stories where the kids take a picture of like a water bottle or an inanimate object in the room and then turn it into a monster and write a little story for it. I've seen an English teacher who teaches about personification and has students take a picture of something and give it human characteristics and then write about it, personify it. I've seen social studies teachers have them take pictures off the internet and annotate over top of them, but just a really powerful tool to be able to take real pictures and uh, mark them up right away. So I think that is a really neat thing. And I'd love to see your examples. If you have kids doing this, please tweet them at us using hashtag make some brainwaves. That's a really good one. I'm going to try it with my son tonight. I'm going to make him take a picture of a water bottle and see what kind of monster he creates. He drew me a really, a really pretty Power Ranger last night that I taped to my computer. It's really cute. So thank you for those tips, Ben. And now, as if we haven't blown your mind enough in the last five minutes, regaling stories of what other teachers are doing, we have another treat in store, which is our interview with Allison Zamuda. Allison, who has the coolest initials in the business, has co-authored educational books on topics from personalized learning to continuous improvement to, to librarians as learning specialists. And we talked specifically today about engagement. And for this, I wa- we wanted to preface this interview a little bit with a vocab discussion. We had a great interview with George Kuros a couple of episodes back, so please go and listen if you haven't yet. But he discusses the continuum of compliance to engagement to empowerment and how we need to be empowering students, not just engaging them in what we want them to do. And in looking in both of their bodies of work, we really think that the engagement that Allison will talk with us about today and in her writings is in is really the same in some ways as what George Kuros would describe as empowerment. So keep that in mind as you listen and try to be flexible 
flexible with those terms. At the end of the day, we're all trying to figure out this language together, and some people are going to use different terminology for similar ideas, as we all know. So um, while we talk about engagement, we can also think about empowerment as we listen today. In this episode, we talked about the importance of collegial collaboration in the industry, the pitfalls and success of moving towards student-centered learning, and so much more. But without further ado, here she is. Thank you so much for being on Brainwaves. Can we start off? Can you tell us who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm Allison Zamunda. I was a high school social studies teacher in Newtown High School in Newtown, Connecticut. And then I transitioned right from the classroom to being an education consultant. You have written, co-authored, I'm sorry, 10 different books since 2001. Is that right? Yep. (laughs) <laughs> and it's that's an amazing amount of work. I can't believe it. But you seem to focus a lot on engagement. So why, of all things to improve upon as a teacher, why is fostering engagement so paramount in your mind? It, it actually comes down to something very simple. Learning is a voluntary endeavor. The three of us, for example, are not, not only just so excited for the conversation, we were anticipating it. So we came with a prepared mind. Um, the opportunity to engage throughout the conversation we're here and we are not talking based on a script. We're, we're starting to think interdependently together. And that's, to me, the power of what makes magic happen, whether you're working with a group of first graders or like yesterday, I was working with a group of classroom teachers reimagining a chemistry curriculum. And to me, the opportunity to think, to struggle, to have a voice, to explain, and to create something that is so much better than what you could have ever done by yourself on your own. Mm. And so to me, that's why engagement is at the very core of various books that I've been drafting and continue to imagine. Yeah, I, I totally would second that. Now, in, in my role, when I talk about engagement, I sometimes get pushback from teachers who think when I say engagement, that means they need to make viral videos of them, you know, lip syncing or taking their content and making ice ice baby about social studies or they need to give TED talks or have these beautiful looking slides. So my question for you is, what is engagement? Uh, first of all, I, I'm just already distracted about Ice Ice Baby and social studies. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody could do it, it's bad. Challenge accepted. Do that. So if you want to do a couple beats, that would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> in, in terms of, of engagement, I, I think engagement at at some point is starts to feel hollow or empty. And so when we talk about engagement, we we say. Well, there's engagement and then there's engagement. And <laughs> just because we change our, our, our voice doesn't mean that that connotation is clear yet. So to have somebody deeply engaged is actually an idea that teachers need to, to play out and to think through. In the book, you had an opportunity to see the chart that Robin Jackson and I developed. And the idea of engagement is that we can engage kids in a a compliant, dutiful way, meaning that they enjoy the experience, but at the same time, they're not cognitively in the thick of it yet. So to me, as I define engagement, engagement is that ability for students and, and teachers to see that it requires deep thinking and analysis and problem solving. And so engagement is not necessarily this Pollyanna or always joyful enterprise. 
deep engagement as a furrowed brow or a level of frustration. It's likely more of what a roller coaster ride looks like with some highs and lows. It also means that you may be a little cranky at times. (laughs) So impatient, you know, the interesting part of the origin of that chart in in the Real Engagement book was I sat with a group of library media specialists in upstate New York, and they described that kids weren't engaged. And I, I had them start thinking about what do they do instead of being engaged? And so they drafted that first column of the chart of the compliant, dutiful student. I said, okay, so what what do you want from them? And again, they drafted that second column of the chart. And all of a sudden, as we were almost finished with it, one of the library media specialists sucked in her breath. And she's like, I have a big problem with what we're doing right now. And hmm. so everybody stopped and, and we said, what's the matter? She said, I like the wrong kids. Oh, wow. Whoa. And all of a sudden, we all stopped and, and re-examined uh, the list. And she said, see, I talk a good game, but I don't really like the the attributes that we're describing on the right. Because these are the kids that actually are not trying to be disrespectful, but if they're fully immersed, they become reluctant to move on to the next step because they're in the thick of the step that they're on. Yeah. Or huh. they actually move out of where they're supposed to be and go to a different station or section of the library. And all of a sudden you can start to see that kids that are deeply engaged question. Kids that are deeply engaged do not want to let go of the assignment, task, challenge, problem, just because the teacher moves on. And so that to me is starting to unravel the idea of engagement. So engagement is not teacher being class performer. Engagement is not teacher trying to make things neat and like an escape room kind of activity. (laughs) It's, It's not that. It's really trying to set the parameters for kids to start being able to get lost in the problem, the challenge, and the topic and support their growth and their experience through conferences, one-on-one conferences, through feedback, through clear criteria. That to me is what deep engagement is. Wow. We had had Elizabeth Green on the podcast and she talked about how the Japanese have hundreds of words more uh, than we do just around the idea of education. And it almost seems like we need a new word for what it is you're talking about. Yeah. Again, it's just to me when you're starting to imagine the thread in the, the books that I've been writing, it was fresh thinking when you said that out loud, because I never really thought about it that way, but that's at the very core of what I'm fascinated by is how to continue to get people motivated to do the heavy lifting. Because where where you are invested in the heavy lifting, there's so much joy and creative possibilities there. Wow. That's I there's so many things that I, I'm gonna have to listen to this podcast like five times because so many of the things you just said are are new sound bites for me. The the one that painted the best picture was engagement as a furrowed brow. Like I've got a furrowed brow right now just listening to you talk <laughs> about this. And it's and that's true. I'm I'm completely engaged in the conversation, just like you said. How do you talk to teachers who hesitate to allow students to get lost because of time? It's first of all, it's difficult to get around, especially if you have a pacing guide that's telling you where you should be in it it sort of constrains the teachers It makes them feel like they're on an incredibly tight leash, even if the pacing guide is not something that the site or the district 
demands. It's something that a classroom teacher can actually create in their own head and trying to follow a pacing guide, whether it's a grade level team or a PLC or even their own. So I think on some level, the first job from a, a teacher's point of view is starting to think about what are, what is it that I'm trying to go after in this learning experience? So it's not the topic, it's the goals. I think that would be the first thing that I would quietly say to the classroom teacher. So you're not doing two-step linear equations, but what are you trying to go after within the scope of that topic? And it's not just the content territory, it's the opportunity for them to grow their capacity as mathematicians. We don't feel good if we have kids that can produce straightforward explanations or to be able to work through straightforward problems or oversimplified texts. That doesn't make us feel like we're accomplishing anything yet. And so trying to think hard about where are the moments over the scope of a unit or over the scope of a year where I'm deliberately carving out space to go deep. If we don't think about that in the long term, the likelihood is that we can create that engagement moment on the short term is slim to none. The concrete example from yesterday when I was working in a high school around a chemistry curriculum is we really started to think about what can we pare down over the scope of a year so that we're making room, we're, we're holding space for kids to be able to become more invested and excited about a challenge problem or inquiry as part of the curriculum. Because I think on some level, if we don't pare down we're never going to create an opportunity for that to happen. And it gets worse as the kids get older. Yeah, because there's so much more to get through. We talked a little bit about the barrier that teachers see with time. I think the other big barrier is kind of this idea that true engagement, as you talk about it, really involves teachers giving up control. And there's this big worry about behavior and that teachers say, well, when I have these structures in place, they don't behave right now. So if I totally remove structure, the behavior is going to be crazy. So how do you advise a teacher who says, I can't allow for engaging learning because my kids don't behave. So thank you for raising that because it's something that classroom management is significant. So the territory that I continue to grow into now is the idea of personalized learning. At the very root of it is deep engagement where the learners are co-creating or generating the experiences. And if we're in that space and the students do not necessarily have a sense of self-management, for example, if they haven't really understood and respect the rules or the parameters of the classroom, if the students are behaving in a way that it's not safe for other learners to be collaborating with them, it is absolutely a disaster. And so I think the question is, how can we continue? And this is, to me, a school-based question or a district-based question. What are we doing to continue to grow those softer skills of self-direction and self-management? Are we using something like habits of mind, for example, to instruct kids on how to think about their own thinking or manage impulsivity. I think from a classroom management point of view, if you pull back the teacher parameters or rules and have kids start to navigate their own learning, it will predictably 
run amok right away hmm. without having any kind of gradual release of responsibility or without any meaningful training on things like self-management and self-direction. So what do you do when you get stuck on a problem or a challenge? As adults, we figured out how to navigate that. And in some territories, we navigate it as adults a heck of a lot better than in other territories. Yep. So um, somebody may absolutely throw up their hands when they're trying to do something on Google Slides. Somebody else, it may be an issue with interpersonal dynamics. And trying to get kids to be versatile enough to be able to recognize when they're feeling frustrated or upset or angry and to start creating a way around that or to be able to decompress from the situation. So whether it's social emotional learning, thinking about habits of mind, also thinking about restorative justice, I think there are significant reasons why to engage a social emotional um, piece in conjunction with uh, getting students to be more deeply engaged in experience. And is that what Habits of Mind does for you? I saw a, a bunch of uh, copy on your website around Habits of Mind, and I was looking into those more. They've been around for like 25 years. Can you speak a little bit to how those inform your practice? Yeah. Ben Akalik is somebody that is now a dear friend and mentor of mine. So we wrote a, a book uh, about a year ago on personalized learning and habits of mind. And to me, it's a, a timeless pedagogy of what we're hoping students can continue to grow into. But you're also starting to take a look at it and say that this is as true for students as it is true for adults. So when you take something like listening with understanding and empathy, it's very easy to do or easier to do when you're engaged in conversation with people that have a similar set of beliefs as you do. We can finish each other's sentences or we can really naturally continue to explore, expound on a conversation together. But it is incredibly difficult to do when you're engaging in a conversation with somebody that you're suspicious of mm -hmm. or uh, potentially you have an issue or concern with them. Even in this space, we all continue to grow in our capacities. So it's interesting as um, Benna, Kalik, and Arcasa continue to share ideas with me, they are deliberately designed as ING verbs because the notion is that we're in an act of becoming we've never arrived. And so when you're thinking about most uh, states that are starting to really play around with the idea of a competency-based or a mastery-based model, um, you can do that for content territories, but you, you certainly can't do that when it comes to continuing to evolve in the, the kinds of thinking and behaviors that habits of mind um, help you to go after. And that's that's exactly what I wanted to kind of get after because I, I think, you know, there's kind of a craze around the nation right now, like how do we measure creativity? How do we measure engagement? And I, I don't think people are, I think people are asking that coming from a good place, you know, just wanting to know if what we're doing is working. So have you seen in, in, engagement as you talk about it measured somehow or like if not, how do we know what's working and what's not? If students are truly engaged, we can see evidence of their engagement 
but I think it's unhelpful to measure engagement straight out. When you're thinking about how do you know that somebody is uh, listening to you? So whether it's when I was in the classroom, a, a student nods his or her head and smiles and makes eye contact. And, and you look at that child and you're like, wow this student is really listening to me. We're really connecting. Totally but locked in. <laughs> yeah, but you don't know. His head and say, wow, that's fascinating. I really am hungry for lunch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and so I think the idea of it, like it, engagement is very subjective if we're trying to observe it straight out. It's not just eye contact. The amount of, to- the amount of times somebody is touching their chin as a symbol of deep thinking. I think it's really evidenced by the kinds of questions that are a result of their experience. Ooh, I like that. Level of depth the conversation goes. Because I think when you're measuring engagement straight out, it favors some students more than others. So engagement can't be measured by how many times you contributed but the depth of your contribution. And the depth of your contribution may mean that I am absolutely silent. And then at the very end, I say something that dramatically shifts and deepens the conversation. Hmm. And so that's the kind of thing where it's difficult to measure something like engagement straight out. And I think when it comes to measuring something like creativity, it's the capacity to think about a problem and, and generate ideas that are actionable. But I think on some level to measure creativity as a straight out indicator is still in, in, in my world potentially problematic. It's, it's almost impossible. It like seems to me like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle that if you're going to, you know, test for a position, then you mess with the momentum and you can't measure them both at the same time. I think it's almost like that. Yeah. And, hmm. and again, I think that students and can, can go after something that is incredibly innovative, but at the end of the idea, at, at the end of the time, what they produced is falls flat. That doesn't mean that the, the, ultimate performance or product is the true measurement of the ideas that were dancing in their head. The blueprint of the ideas, even if it's sort of what they are trying to describe, could actually be so much more substantive than the result that shows up on the table. And really trying to think hard about how can we reveal the thinking that went into the solution path to the problem or the, um, the writing sample that is demonstrated based on what the student was trying to accomplish. You need to get both parts of that information to make a a, a more true judgment of the result if you're trying to measure something like creativity. Wow, that definitely makes me second guess something like a results-only learning environment where if your only feedback is on the product you actually make, you're right, that doesn't actually give a true assessment of maybe all the deep thinking and engagement that happened. Yeah. And and this is something that I'm continuing to fuss with myself when it comes to what schools are asking. Mm -hmm. How can you create a competency-based or mastery learning model? Because it 
what if it's just a reductionist opportunity where we sort of identify the, the content goals of learning and set up an experience, a set of experiences that students are then marching their way through. That's not necessarily creating space for deep engagement. And I would argue that's not even personalized. It's really trying to take kids from where they are and, and give them an opportunity or a path to make learning more efficient. The efficiency is still not necessarily training them for the unpredictable, challenging world that's already around us. So how can we grow students that can think flexibly? And now we're talking about the dispositions or habits of mind again. Those are the territories we're using content to go after those broader aims, not the other way around. For sure. So this topic is so complex and it can be a little daunting, I think, for a teacher, obviously. And so that's why I love in your book, Real Engagement, which uh, we have copies of if you're listening in the district and I highly recommend it. You do an amazing job of distilling student engagement down to four C's. And not the four C's that uh, Tony Wagner or anyone else talks about. These are the four C's of engagement, those being clarity, context, challenge, and culture. And I was just wondering if you wouldn't mind speaking to those and and why you think those are so vital to student engagement. Yeah, so... Clarity is goal clarity. And we we just sort of started that conversation a minute or two ago is what are you aiming for? How do you present that to students and how do you use that with students so that they're partners in a learning experience for you? We don't want students to treat us as a a customer service moment. The, The teacher is not the customer that the student is trying to make happy. And so now all of a sudden you're starting to think about, okay, Number one, do kids understand what it is they're aiming for? And what is it they're aiming for is not to complete the assignment. Wow. And so now the question is, okay, if it's not completing the assignment, what is it? And the answer is, what was was that assignment designed to measure in the first place? So I'm old school UBD in this moment. And so trying to think about goal clarity is the desired results. So this assignment is incredibly valuable because it gives me insight or information on these goals. And if it doesn't do that, the assignment needs to either get tweaked or scrapped. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's goal clarity. And That's the kind of thing um, that teachers can do right now in terms of action-oriented moment is say, I can at this moment look at every single assignment from now on and run it through the filter. What was the goal this assignment was trying to address? And if it's not a clean connection, it either gets scrapped or reimagined. I love that action step. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. So um, the next one we can talk about is challenge. So clarity and challenge definitely go hand in hand. And challenge really means that as a student, how how are you um, helping me grow in this experience? Because I think the issue is that there are some assignments, problems, challenges, texts, tasks, where kids feel like it's, it's a walk in the park. Um, other kids feel like it's such a heavy lift, they don't know where to start. And other kids feel totally shut down because the assignment is impenetrable to them. So the notion of challenge is really starting to dig into the idea 
of formative assessment. How do we know that this assignment is a proper fit for the student? Now I'm starting to talk about personalizing learning again. And to try to think hard about how we can continue to push students within their zone of proximal development. So that sweet spot about it not being um, too easy, but not overly difficult, is really what we're trying to design for. So to me, that's another action step of trying to really pay attention to how might I get students to start to give me better information right out of the gate of whether the assignment is just right for them. When you talk about just right books in uh, our primary grades, Yep. I think the spirit of that should absolutely be something that we do all the way through the learning experience, including um, professional development. So the idea of that just right moment means that some people can go and, and do a deep dive right now and other people really need to just dip their toe in the water and sort of get acclimated. And other people might like to stand on the side of the pool for a little bit and watch other people swim. And, and I, think, I think the interesting part is that from a classroom teacher point of view, I see classroom teachers also demonstrating those same habits of concern that we see in the students. <laughs> because some teachers feel like it's too tough for me. I, I don't even know where to start. Or they throw up um, uh, predictable challenges like, mm. oh, like I don't have enough time or I can't learn this and teach what I'm supposed to be doing right now. And, and I think the interesting part of that is that as we continue to see ourselves as opening ourselves up as adults to continuous improvement, how are we modeling that in our own practice? And to what extent is what we're doing as we continue to fine-tune or reimagine what we're doing in instructional pedagogy, how does that show up in the classroom? So really trying to be a model learner. And model learner doesn't mean a perfect learner. Model right. learner means that the teacher is really talking about how do I handle challenges to have the, the teacher be um, viewed by students as um, approachable when it comes to navigating concerns, challenges, ideas, and having the teacher help guide them by not only what worked for me, but also to be a sounding board. So those are, are, are two of the four C's that are just beautifully connected together. And again, I think highly actionable if folks are just getting started. Oh, I do too. Yeah. And so, Allison, speaking of, of challenge, and if you don't want to talk about this, we absolutely don't have to, but um, I saw in one of your talks online that uh, you had an incredible challenge a few years back and yeah. were able to model your learning after that. Do you mind talking to our audience a little bit about that experience and what you learned from it? Yeah. So um, it's actually interesting because this is the, the month and probably next week is going to be the anniversary of the stroke that I had. Oh. So I think it's um, going on eight years. Wow. And yeah, so I basically went to my daughter's soccer game on a Saturday. She was a kindergartner. So she was five years old running across the field. Um, she was a fabulous soccer player as a five-year-old. So she was kicking a goal and I tried to stand up to cheer and my foot fell asleep. And I finally stood up and then I collapsed to the ground. Oh. So um, 
flash forward, when I woke up from surgery, I basically lost my ability to speak. Um, my memory was um, uh, pretty bad, and I was paralyzed on my, the right side of my body. Oh, my God. Paralysis worked its way out in about 48 hours, um, but the uh, learning how to speak again was uh, just a miserable <laughs> I can't imagine. I I seriously can't either. I heard you talk about this on a podcast and it was like a punch in the stomach. Well, you know, it's interesting to have a five-year-old have a a better vocabulary and ability to string sentences together than you do as a 37-year-old woman who was a (sighs) consultant for a living. And so trying to think about how can you, like when when you're feeling like you're whole life is based on your ability to describe ideas. What, when that's taken away from you, it's really a, 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 not only just a, a punch in the stomach, <laughs> but it's also trying to think about the idea of self-worth and identity and the, um, just the amount of perseverance it takes, but also how you handle or manage something that is so devastating to your devastating your identity the point yeah. where it, it's something that is also you have to work through the depression side of it so i definitely um <laughs> make it make a joke that i i would have probably like to learn another language the second time <laughs> 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 uh, but like i said i uh, you know i it took a lot of years for me to be able to string sentences together. In a oh book. my God. So did you have to like, did you go back better. and not perfect yet? It's <laughs> still getting better. Did you like go back and read the books that you'd already written? Yeah. And it was interesting because I was writing, um, breaking free at that point. So it was, had already gotten shipped to the editor and it was coming back for me to do the final review. And again, that was really six weeks after the stroke and I could remember that where I was sitting when I wrote the book, but when I was reading like the sentence, I could, I could read each word. I had no idea how those words actually work together. And I was reading and I was like, man, this person's pretty smart. But I could, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, where wow. did she come from? I was like, oh. <laughs> wow. Alice. So, yeah, so that's, it's, it's, it's a, been a, a tough road, but I think, um, the book learning personalized. There was about a, a four-year gap in my next writing assignment between Breaking Free and then, and that was just the first creative idea I had in the past three to four years. Man. So, to me, the the level of thing that gets you through the tough parts, the hard parts. And um, to be able to continue to reflect back on it and see that um, while I definitely am not the same person I was pre-stroke, hopefully that experience has made me more empathetic and also more appreciative of every single classroom teacher that works with students in a space where they have to start being sensitive mm-hmm. um, to where people are. Because to create a, a, a glass ceiling on a student, I had that experience when I was 37 and somebody said, well, you're never going to consult again. Oh. And, you know, and I think that's from a medical point of view, really trying to think about we make we make assumptions on students' behalf. 
And those assumptions are not necessarily lining up with what it is they aspire to themselves. And how can we continue to honor who they are and grow them while still working through our curriculum? That's the holy grail. Wow. That's amazing. Did, did the whole experience needing to reteach yourself again, what did it teach you about learning in the brain? Yeah, it's funny because there was a, a period of time after the stroke, I, I, could, I could see things in my head. I could, I could visually picture things in my head. In and in a different way, it's not like just a picture. Do I mean, there was some visualization that actually got more powerful And when I tried to put it into words, that was the incredibly frustrating part of the endeavor of of trying that the, the creative imagining continued to happen on, and it actually um, was more on overdrive, but the ability to express that to other people was something that became increasingly frustrating for me from a communication point of view. So that was the interesting, one of the interesting aspects. I think the second interesting thing is that I could not say a coherent sentence when I was in speech therapy, like the first week. So the only thing I could say was that's ridiculous. Oh my God. I knew that I could use that in lots of different settings. So I was like, that's ridiculous. (laughs) But when somebody was playing Scrabble with a therapist next to me, Uh, they were trying to add up like the numbers. So he's trying to figure out what seven times three was. And I turned and looked at him and I was like, 21. And I'm like, how do I know my math facts? Wow. (laughs) But I can't put a sentence together. And again, to me, I think that's so incredibly fascinating. Oh, absolutely. You should have said 21. That's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) I I think I might have. That's awesome. Wow, you're incredible. You I, really I just are. I, I can't even I can't get over it. I want to ask a little bit about your collaboration with other educators. So you've you've co-authored all the books you've written. And I, I'm just curious about why you rely so heavily on collaboration and what what about it helps you grow as an educator. I'm I'm you've written a book with Wiggins and McTie, and you know, like you said, um who was it? Ben uh Kalik before. Yep, totally. What, what does collaboration do for you? Yeah. So it, and so the, the interesting part is that the, the one book that I wrote by myself, which was Breaking Free, first of all, I felt like I wasn't really accountable to anybody. <laughs> so it's helpful to actually um, have deadlines that other people are counting on you for, as opposed to making up my own deadline and then not making it. <laughs> so I think that's the first thing is really to have that level of accountability but the, probably the most important thing for me is I love growing ideas with other people. And I think that even just that powerful conversation and immersion, especially when it's interfaced with being able to translate it into text and using the text to deepen those conversations, those oral conversations, to me, that's what magic looks like. And so I care more about that than at the end of the day, what the book actually looks like. Now that's terrible to say as an author, um, (laughs) but to me, it's like the way that I hopefully engage as as a writer is to create a conversational tone so that the reader is going shoulder to shoulder with me and my collaborative partners. 
it's a it's it, it's supposed to be an accessible but really an opportunity to dive deep into a challenge or a problem and really start to move into the the pedagogical implications but still approachable i mean so that that's the kind of um hopefully that's a the kind of effect that you start to see whether it's in real engagement or the work um, that I just did uh, with Mike Fisher and Marie Alcock on, on the quest. Wow. Yeah, it definitely comes across. And I, I think, you know, out of all the interviews we've done and even just talking with people uh, that I work with every day, I think at the end of the day, most of it is about bouncing your ideas off of other people and listening to what they have to say. And I mean, there's nobody can do this alone. This is all about collaboration and our collective minds thinking about these very complex problems. So I really appreciate that point of view. I think that's incredible. Yeah, that's fantastic. I I remember hearing once that C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien uh, got together and would go over and critique each other's work. And, you know, that gave us Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and The Hobbit. And it's a pretty cool thing when authors do that. So I'd like I'm to be very, a fly on the wall in that conversation. Oh, that'd yeah. be pretty cool. <laughs> no kidding. I'd, if you were a fly are, are on the wall, you'd probably talk. Again? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe, I will. Maybe he, they hung out with Manila, um, Millie Vanilli. That, <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. So we, we have some rapid fire questions that we give yeah. to every guest. But before we do that, could I just ask one question that I, I've been curious about, which would be you're in schools all over the country. And yeah. what has been your favorite example from a unit or a lesson of student engagement that you've seen? That's an interesting question. I mean, so there are so many wildly different examples. So I'm thinking about a, a sixth grade writing um, experience where students were deeply invested in writing their own stories and I sat down at a table and they, each one of them were, was able to talk to me about what it was that they were trying to go after and where they were struggling and starting to play out a sentence or an idea or a phrase that continued to be magical. I mean, so to me, that is one moment of just kids being immersed in a writing experience and when they're coming up for air, they're wiser from the experience. The writing pros may still need a fair bit of work, but they can tell what it was that they were trying to go after and where they, from their sixth grade point of view, feel where it's at right now. And to me, that is an example of something that's incredibly powerful. But I can also think about when I, my son um, was in kindergarten, first day of school, a kindergarten classroom teacher explained what kind of reading they can do at the end of the year. And the way that she was describing it, again, it was a whole class moment. The kids were mesmerized by what she was saying, that every single student is going to, at some point during the year, stand up and describe what it was they were reading, and why it was so important to them. And not only the five-year-olds, but me in the back of the room, I actually, I got a little verklempt, and I before I left the classroom. I'm kind of crying right now. My eyes are tearing up. I said, that was the best explanation of 
of what a kindergarten should do for students that I've ever heard. And what if like every teacher did that, you know, like by the end of the year, here's what you're going to be able to do. Like that is, that gives you goosebumps. Yeah, that's cool. And it does. And to me, it's something, it's another action step. How can we create on our very first day of school with students, how can we create an opportunity to describe not just the highlights of what we're going to explore, but what it is that they're going to accomplish as a result of spending time with me for 184 days. I love how you keep giving action steps to our listeners. Thank you so much for doing that. That's awesome. I love how you're little you're charging us for those too. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little price of 99 cents. <laughs> yeah, just the electricity right now, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Well, and that's the other part too, is that um, I don't know if folks have started to hang out on learningpersonalized.com. So I'll do a shameless plug for a free Please site. Do. Please yeah, do. Yeah, do it. Yeah, because th- it's something that is also a part of my passion. I'm, I'm really trying to identify um, teacher leaders and administrators and, and students across the country that are doing fabulous things that are describing the kind of learning experiences that we're all um, continuing to work toward. So um, that's what learningpersonalized.com is all about. So um, every time I have um, an opportunity to visit schools, there's something that I always come across that just so stunning that it's helpful to uh, capture it as authentically as possible. And most of the times it's having the, the teacher voice or the student voice or a collaborative voice to um, document that thinking. And, and that's the, the heart of, that, of the learning personalized community. So if you haven't checked it out, that would be lovely for you to go do. Because totally. yeah, we'll the labor link of to love. That in our show notes for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally free. <laughs> that's it's what beautiful. I'm yep. It is beautiful. Okay. Rapid fire questions. Rapid fire. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Sound bite there. Yep. <laughs> All right. First rapid fire question is if you could have a billboard anywhere in the world, and it would metaphorically communicate your message to hundreds of millions of people passing by, what yeah. would go on your billboard? It could be a picture. It could be a quote. It could be a picture and a quote. Uh, what would go on your billboard to the world? Uh, it probably would be a visual. So there, there's two things that are immediately popping. One is like there's the billboard of the future next exit. Ooh. Oh yeah, yeah. So the idea of that, the, the this I, uh, the idea of the future as being something that's so far away and so immediate at the same time. To that's something that, uh, well, and again, it's also a billboard, so that's funny. Um, <laughs> but but that's something that I immediately think about. And then the second thing I immediately think about is a young version of myself. And again, that's something that I can also imagine for everybody else. But the idea is that you see your younger self on a billboard looking out into the world with an expression of endless possibility and wonderment on his or her face. And so the idea of it doesn't matter how old you are to channel your inner three-year-old, four-year-old self when you thought, the world was just so vast and ripe with possibilities where people are kind and gracious and want the best for you. To have that, that would also be pretty cool. 
Wow. That's well, that, beautiful. that really goes with one of the quotes you have in the book from Einstein, that it's a short miracle that our modern methods of instruction haven't completely strangled out holy curiosity of inquiry. And I think a billboard that got that message across is super powerful. And you didn't have these questions ahead of time. You're amazing. No, not at yeah. all. Yeah. Very That's impressive. Great. Yeah. Very impressive. Thank you. All right, second rapid fire, Allison, which um, I just realized that your initials are A to Z. That's pretty incredible. That must be fun for you. Well, yeah, I got a bunch of wedding uh, bookmarks that way. Oh, yeah, I bet. I bet. <laughs> um, so in the past like five or so years, or just recently for you, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? It doesn't have to be professionally, uh, just what's something that's, that's helping you out as a human these days? The fact that I learned about habits of mind in the past five years. Awesome. So to me, that was just such a, a missing link from my thinking. And so um, it, it's just <laughs> fabulous to have um, somebody like Ben Akalik to actually be in that, that journey or that space with me. And I think from out of all of the habits, listening with understanding and empathy is um, truly transformative. Definitely I'm a work in progress, <laughs> but I think the idea of thinking interdependently with people requires an opportunity to be reflective, to give them voice, to grow opportunities, not for them, but with them. And to me, the hardest, but also the most powerful times I felt in in that experience was with the listening piece. Fantastic. All right. This question is going to ask you to throw someone under the bus, but you don't have to say their name. All right. So you travel the globe. You are an education consultant. You've written amazing books. My question is, what is some bad advice you sometimes hear in your profession? I think that you can create a better learning experience by parceling things out into incremental steps. So when you're thinking about like old school, Bob Marzano first started saying things like in the standards movement, you had to have 10 more years of schooling to cover all the standards. I think there's this mentality of micromanaging the content and the skills. And then if only we could quantify that and move them through it, it's, that would be what learning looks like or what a learned student looks like. Hmm. And it's even worse when people are saying, oh, let's do that for creativity. And so to me, that's incredibly bad advice because you can't micromanage or you can't take it to the granular level and expect the learning to actually be something that has a longer lasting legacy to it. And I think at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that in children, including some, including my own two children, if learning starts to feel like jumping through a series of hoops without quite understanding why am I doing this in the first place, again, clarity, um, it, it starts becoming this kind of compliant, passive learning experience. And that doesn't work for kids and it certainly doesn't work for adults. Allison, we cannot thank you enough for your time. You have been so generous with us and sharing your insights and just your incredible thoughts. And we really, really can't thank you enough. Oh my gosh. It's been so much fun hanging out with y'all. 
virtually. So, <laughs> and like I said, I, I continue to um, enjoy these conversations so much. All right, Becky, let's close up shop. What did you learn? Well, I'm going to cheat on this one uh, and not say something that I learned from this actual episode, but we were lucky enough to have uh, Allison out for a professional development at the start of this school year to St. Vrain, and she had some really usable tools for thinking about how to center your instructional environment around students and when that's appropriate and when it's not. And one of the things that she taught us is that it doesn't have to be an all or nothing proposition, which I think we all know, but she has this beautiful metaphor like of audio sliders, kind of how you'd see on like an old um, stereo system. Then then one side of the continuum, you have teacher created, and then on the other side is student created, and the middle is co-created. So how are you moving the sliders for different aspects of your work or your unit or your lesson? For things like goal setting or for inquiry or for evaluation, where should students create? Where should teachers drive the learning? And then where can we design what that looks like together in a co-creating environment? Some really concrete ideas for her seven elements of personalized learning, which I'll also point to in show notes. How about you, Ben? I loved Allison's story about her son's first day of kindergarten, and I think all teachers should take that as a challenge. How can you inspire students by what they're going to be able to do after 184 days in your classroom? I thought that was fantastic. Also just loved that she opened up with us about her struggle with her stroke and just a a reminder that we all are going through battles and to show each other some grace amidst that battle. And uh, I thank you all so much for listening. You're the best listeners ever. And I hope you all have a great generic time of day.